following presentation by Taylor Fragon Capital Management LLC is intended for general information purposes only. No portion of the presentation serves as the receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice from Taylor Fragon or any other investment professional of your choosing. Please see additional important disclosure at the end of this presentation. A copy of Taylor Fragon's current written disclosure brochure discussing our advisory services and fees is available upon request or at www.taylorfragon.com. Welcome to Only Podcast. As you just heard something come through in my messaging, but Jerry, how are you doing? I'm well. How are you doing, Doug? I'm all right. Uh, so we are on episode... Don't put episode. a lot of emphasis on that. I'm all right. Just... Yeah. I'm all right. We're here. We're here. We're here. This is my version of Doug. We're going to play around with the format today, and uh, we will first want to start with a brief market update. Jerry, you want to talk about the interest rates? Interest rates have peaked. Interest rates what? <laughs> have peaked. <laughs> it's peaked. I think they've peaked. I think it's. I, hope so. I, think, I think it's. I think it's over. I think the Fed will. We will soon find out that the Fed is going to backpedal the other direction now because they've overshot. They were too late to raise. Now they've raised too much probably slowed the economy more than they you anticipated, even though them wanting to slow the economy is insanity. Economic growth would eat up all that extra money supply that's caused the inflation. But I do think it's, I think it's, I think they've peaked. I think we've seen the hype. I want um, you, again, we're getting into predictions here, which is dangerous. Yeah, I don't like to do. If you had to guess though, do you think they're just going to keep them here for a while or, or reduce them soon? Yeah. I, I mean, I, it, I think, well, the market has predicted in a May cut. I think it's very possible. It's not likely. It's much before that. Because I think you're going to start seeing much, maybe even negative inflation numbers. Um, and perhaps much more, much slower numbers on the economy. So then they'll start to panic in the other direction. And, and what, you know, we've, I, I hope doesn't happen is that they end up going back to 0% interest rates again. I mean, but that's a risk. I mean, it, we've gotten into this negative feedback loop of everything revolves around the Fed and everything they do is, is you know, you know, controlling the economy is their thing. It's all wrong, but it, it's, you know, it's the, it's the hand we're being dealt. We got to play it. And that's just the way it is. So I wish they would get out of the way and just be in the background, and give us price stability. They've given us anything but that. So, and I don't want to say that it's all completely their fault. Massive drunken spending by politicians has obviously been the, the much bigger aspect of this. But as as Dick Taylor said, and I've said many times on this podcast, we get by in spite. And what's that spite? It's that policymakers will make mistakes over and over again. So I think I think, but I, I do think now that the, the that rates have peaked. Um, it, I think it's unlikely we will see uh, any higher rates, um, you know, the bond market is telling us. And, and the other thing that's important to keep in mind, though, and this isn't something, this is getting a little in the weeds, but generally, you know, so many people say, oh, inverted yield curve, which means, you know, the longer term maturities are lower than shorter term maturities. And so that inversion means there's a recession coming or or that we're even in one. Um, 
what I think is actually better at determining whether or not there's a recession coming is that the, what we call credit spreads. How much higher do lower quality fixed income notes, in other words, bonds, um, how much higher are they than quality? So if you think of the spread between, you know, it, it take, let's say it's, you know, a company that's a lower quality company goes to borrow money and they have to pay 15% interest rate and the treasury for a, say a 10 year note and then the 10 year treasury is trading at three and a half. That's a huge spread. That's, that's extreme. The spreads between the lower, lower quality and higher quality bonds or notes is actually right in line with relatively normal economic growth. And that's usually a really good indicator when you see that spread between quality and, and less than quality get wider. And we're not seeing that right now. So that's, that, that would tell me that it's likely that we can end up with a reasonably soft landing. And the, the resilience of the economy continues and through, through just about everything policymakers can throw at it to screw it up. All right. So that's, that, that's, I'd say that's the general market update. And if we're, if we're right about that, then we probably are seeing, you know, we'll, we'll probably see the end of this, you know, bear market and risk asset, risk, risk assets, i.e. growth companies and the like. Particularly small cap growth. Particularly small cap growth. Um, an area which has hurt us on our growth side of the equation. Um, probably means most major, and, and, and most of the major commodities, I mean, most, people aren't seeing it yet as far as, you know, what they pay at the grocery store for food and what have you. Uh, but uh, energy's come down. We are seeing that in the gas prices. They've come down. Um, is it going to get back to where it was anytime soon? No. I mean, that would take very now negative inflation for a fairly long period of time, which is not likely. That's the sad part of this is that you end up with these prices. You know, you have a, a, bout, of, excuse me, a bout of inflation and prices go up. Well, okay, now inflation is ending. We're not getting higher prices, but it's not like they're all reverting back to you know, where they were pre this inflation run. So ratchet generally only goes one way. Correct. Unfortunately. All right. So there's the market update and we're going to play with a new segment. We're going to break things up a little bit. And right now we want to give you something very actionable that the neophytes can use on the investment side. Just something really basic because some, we got people listening who have various, various levels of investment experience. And we just want to address the, some of those, those basic questions. We did, what is, what is stock last week? I said, what is a stock? And Jerry said, no, what is stock? That's the question he chose to answer, leaving out the modifier. Listen, if you, if you want to hear why. This week, we just want to talk about how do I buy a mutual fund? What is a mutual fund and how do I buy it? I should say. Because you do buy a mutual fund a little bit a little bit differently than a stock, and in some ways it's actually easier. So, Jerry, what is a mutual fund? So I'm going to qualify that by saying let's talk about what we would call open end mutual funds, which is the traditional definition of a mutual fund. There's all kinds of different angles on mutual funds now: ETFs, which trade every second of every day; closed end funds, which also trade on the exchanges. Um, we're talking about the traditional open end fund. When people don't specify, they're generally talking about an open-ended mutual fund. Uh, yes, I would say so. I would say so. We're going to we're going to say that here anyway. Okay. Um, so, an, a mutual fund is simply a trust that is put together for purposes of pooling investors' assets together, and it's open-ended in that it is perpetually 
increasing its share count when if new money is coming into the fund on a daily basis and decreasing its share count if money is going out of the fund on a daily basis. So it's open end. It's not there's no close to it. They can close. They can close down and not take any new money and you know then it's etched in stone for a while. But it's 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 essentially a perpetually available <clears throat> pool of money of of multiple investors and we would call them shareholders because it's literally a, a public stock. It's a it's a it's a trust that's created um, and, it, and and created by an administrator or, or a, an asset management company. Um, we have our own open end mutual fund, Taylor for Goncourt Growth Fund, and shareholders are are pooled together into one. Think of it as one account that we all own a piece of. It's all own shares of, and those shares, as I said, can be redeemed or purchased every day. At the end of the day, at the close of the day, they add up all of the value of all the, in this case, we'll talk stocks that are in the mutual fund. If it's a, if it's a pure stock fund, can be, whatever asset is in there can be an open-ended mutual fund. Generally have to be publicly traded, although nuanced, you can get into issues where mutual funds can't own private companies. But let's just keep it simple. It's primarily publicly traded securities. You can It can be a bond mutual fund. They can own bonds, treasury bonds, corporate bonds, municipal bonds, and function in the same way where at the end of the day, they value all of the investments that's priced at the end of the day. You know, when IBM closes at X price per share at the end of the day, at the close of the market, it's that, and that's if that were a position in the mutual fund, it would be one of the positions that's valued to get the total value. And if you're buying, you're buying at that price. If you're selling, you're selling at that price. Um, Frankly, very it's a beautiful way of of diversifying for especially for smaller investors. Um, I mean, you can start. I think the minimum on ours is a thousand dollars, and maybe I think it's a thousand dollars at least in an IRA. Um, if, especially if you, I think you have to sign up to make an automatic investment, like once a quarter, and can be as little as like a hundred bucks. So it's a way for smaller investors to get into the market, get into a managed, professionally managed fund or investment vehicle um, that's easily bought and sold and um, is, is re- it's really a great way for the smaller investor particularly um, to be able to invest. And we love it from the portfolio management side because it's one account number. <clears throat> um, yes, there's an administrator that has to keep track of all the, the shareholders and what they have. But from an asset manager standpoint, it's, it's, a, it's a great situation because Instead of having to manage a bunch of different accounts, and when you're, we're making a transaction, we have to do it across multiple accounts. It's one account. It's relatively simple. And one of the primary virtues of a mutual fund compared to individual stock or an exchange-traded fund is that the mutual fund you can buy the you can buy in terms of dollars. You can denominate in terms of dollars. Yes. You can say, I want to buy it exactly a thousand dollars. And so that's what that's what makes the automatic investing so easy for a mutual fund. So for someone who most individual investors really don't have any business buying individual stocks, I don't mean I don't mean that to talk down to them. It just it requires a lot of a lot of decision making, a lot of management. And if you want to get the most bang for your buck in terms of diversification and things like that, a mutual fund is often the way to go. And the actual mechanics of simply buying it are very convenient compared to other investments. Definitely. 
So you'll go in, you'll enter in the five-digit ticker, you, you know, go to a discount brokerage, whether it's Schwab, Fidelity, someplace else, Ameritrade, you know, and then you, which is Schwab now, but whatever. And nope. Go ahead. Sorry. Pardon? I was going to say one thing I was going to say on that, however, and this is getting a little bit again into the weeds, but not all mutual funds are, are available on all platforms. This is true. Okay. So that's that I would say that's one negative. So if you might have a particular mutual fund that you want and you're in, you know, you have an account at, I don't know, Morgan Stanley. um, It may be that that mutual fund is not on Morgan Stanley's platform. Um, That's a little bit of a, frankly, I think a problem in the industry, the way that works, but um, you know, most funds are available at least on multiple platforms. So that if you want to buy that fund, you'll find one that it's on. Yes. And then also with regard to expenses, the good thing about the traditional open end mutual fund is what you see is what you get in terms of the share price. So if you've got a 1% management fee, then that 1% management fee means that a fraction of a, of a percent is taken out each of the 250 or 255 trading days of the year. And uh, that is, that is taken out every, every day. So in a way that management fee, while you've got, well, you should, it's not taken out of your account in, in the way that other expenses are, it shows up more as a drag in performance. So if you yes, somehow yes. stumbled across a fund with like a 5% management fee, which would never happen, which would be absurd, and uh, practically speaking, it would be, the difference you would see was just you'd see lower returns if you compared it to a fund with a similar objective that had a you know a one percent or a half percent management fee. Yes, and that that so that's the net asset value every day. It literally yep. nets out all of the expenses of the fund every single day. All right. So which leads to what segment three? Segment three, which is we want to talk about something that is a little bit different from the investing side, and it's personal finance. Personal finance, I think of it as like the defense of your money management, the structures of things. And it really starts there because without, without good personal finance, the investing stuff, as fun as it is to talk about, really doesn't matter. So you need to have your ducks in a row, your expenses in order, uh, know where your money's going, things like that. So Jerry is actually going to, I have a feeling I know what he's going to say, but I don't know for sure. It's Jerry my favorite savings plan. Favorite savings plan of all time, right? Jerry's favorite savings plan. Okay. So this ties right into the mutual fund and particularly for young investors trying to save. And I can't emphasize more. I heard it all over and over again when I was young. Now that I'm old, I'm going to say it like I was old, an old person telling me when I was young. So they talk about saving regularly, dollar cost averaging, which we'll get into in another, you know, what is this segment? But Maybe it, what it is is essentially averaging in over time into the into the market. Great way of, of of investing, especially small dollar amounts, periodically planned periodic investments. It can be every every month, every two weeks, whatever. Um, might get a little crazy if it was anything more than every two weeks. Every quarter is even fine. Um, but what I really like is a savings plan using invest. So really, it's a savings and investment plan, and what you do, let's say, forget where the market is. It doesn't matter where the market is as far as is it up, is it down, is it sideways. Um, you make an initial investment into a fund, and then you set up, and maybe that's even only $1,000. And let's say you've determined that, well, I can save $500 a month. into, And this is outside 
of retirement plans, 401ks, those kinds of things. We'll talk about that in another time. I'm sure we'll do a, what is this on 401k? But most people who are working know what a 401k plan is. This is over and above that. And what you do is you take half of the money that you would normally save or invest and you put it in that investment. The other half, you put it in a cash type investment, money market fund, if you will. It's readily available, easily accessible. And just continue on that path for, you know, on, on in, on out, whatever, however long it takes to get what I'll call a reasonable correction in your investment side. And I say that's 15%. If there's a 15% correction, then you take half of the cash that you've raised and you put in half of it. So remember, you've been putting $500 a month away. $250 goes into your, automatically goes into your investment account. $250 goes into your cash account. You have a 15% drop in the value of your investment. You take half that cash and buy. And then keep keep on that same path again. There's another break point, if you will, at 20% down from your investment. Take that half of that what's left and put it in, put it, put it in. Okay. And then let it ride. Keep doing the same thing. Keep doing the same thing. And little by little, market recovers. It's coming back up. You still what you've doing what you're doing when you do something like this is you always have cash available, perhaps for an emergency, but more importantly available when you have a market correction or a bad market. Now, sometimes <laughs> you might get to the point where, and I mean, the, the numbers could get ridiculous where if you keep cutting it in half and cutting it in half and coming in half, hopefully the bear market doesn't last that long or correction doesn't turn into a long-term bear market. Um, at some point, you know, if you get to 25%, you take the whole thing and you just dump it in there and say, look, this is crazy. Yep. And I think that that's a way to keep yourself from if it's the top of the market, you didn't buy everything at the top. I mean, if it's the bottom of the market, that's going to work against you. But at some point, you'll get a correction and you'll be able to buy. And if, if nothing else, and we've actually done some statistics on this, and it didn't really surprise me that it didn't necessarily make a huge difference in returns. But more than anything, psychologically, I think it's helpful. There was a little bit better return, but there's so many things that can come into play. And the reality is, is you're probably from a, from a performance standpoint, you probably are better off dumping it all in and just leaving it alone, regardless of where the market is and just keep adding to it. But this is a way that gives people some level of peace of mind so that they're, they are truly saving in cash and they are truly investing with, with half of the money. And, and it gives you a natural value type of approach to your savings and investment plan by when there's a drop, you buy more. Um, and I should say, I'm not going to say that it couldn't work very much in your favor and better than if you had just dumped it all in at once, it could very well do that. Um, it's more, I think it's, it's better from a psychological standpoint because so much of investing is, is psychological to the extent of, and I'll use a Warren Buffett statement, investing is more about your stomach than your head. And I, you know, when I say psychological, you think head, but what it really is, is your gut, you know, oh, can I handle this? Is Do I have the stomach for the volatility of the market, especially today? It's just gotten so darn volatile. So I think it, and, and that psyche is super important because what tends to happen with the average investor when there's a difficult market, what do they do? They panic and sell, which is like the worst thing they could possibly do. So this is like training you to do the opposite. Um, 
and keeps you liquid enough that if, you know, if you should need funds for some reason, you got some. That's my favorite savings and investment plan. To your point, most of the, most of the studies <laughs> indicate that the best time to invest is when you have the cash to invest. So you get a lump right. sum, put it in the market. But while markets work, humans don't always work. And so exactly. it's difficult to do. So if you can do little, for lack of a better term, hacks like this that are going to make it easy for you to stay in bounds, uh, then by all means, do them. Use tricks. Acknowledge the fact that you're human. You need psychological tricks. You need to fool yourself and work with humanity. Don't fight against it too much. Right. And I would say that it didn't, it, doing that didn't hurt anybody. That I, the, the analysis, we, we did an analysis a few years back, and it was over 20 years. And it, it didn't it didn't hurt anything. It didn't really make that much of a difference. I truly think it's more of a psychological thing. Um, and again, that's not to say that it wouldn't work for you. The, the tendency might also be there to say, oh, there's a correction in the market. Let's just throw the whole thing in. And that, would, that, might, that might actually be a better way from an investment standpoint. I'm just trying to say discipline and always leaving yourself with some cash available uh, is not a bad idea. The one thing you can control is when you're buying after a correction, you know for a fact you're not buying at an all-time high. You know that. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to go farther down. It just means you're not going to buy at an all-time high. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, they used to say it's not timing the market, it's time in the market. And that is completely true. But it doesn't change that people psychologically make, they make mistakes when they come in at peaks and no one knows when the peak is. You know, you only know it's a peak after. And, you know, but, but people that come in at a peak are often ones that, you know, they, they come in at a peak, you know, a year, two years, three years later, it hasn't fully recovered yet. And they're selling out at a bottom or whatever. Um, and that really is devastating. So this is a, this is a technique or a tool to keep you from making those mistakes. And something to keep in mind is whenever you make a big change, this happens, people, people see performance and they go to a new advisor because that advisor's had really great, really great performance. And they, they have an inflection point there. You need to be ready psychologically for the next big move to be down. Don't yeah. just expect if you jump on the ship of, of a hot money manager after they've had a good run if you if you jump on it, that you're just going to see the run continue. You've got to be prepared for the fact that, hey, the next big move could be a move down. Am I okay with that? Mm-hmm. Yep. I'll move unless you are. It'll make everyone happy. All right. Next All right. segment, Jerry. Brand new segment again. We're going to do our, I can't call this free market Saints and sinners, because you hate the term market, or capitalism, saints and sinners, because you don't, don't like, like that term capital. either. So it's free enterprise, saints and sinners. So we're going to feature someone every week who's been either a, you know, a good or a bad, uh, what's the word, representative of uh, or ambassador of uh, of free enterprise. So. And this week, we're going to do none other than Tom Monaghan, one of the two famous Catholic Detroit pizza icons, the other being Mike, Mike Illich. But, uh, I, actually, I don't know who Mike Illich is. is Little that, Caesars. Was that Little Caesars? They're yeah. both from Detroit. I did not. I knew Detroit. why. Obviously, I knew Tom. Tom was from Detroit, but I did not know Little Caesars was also from Detroit. Yep. So Tom, the founder of... One of my organizations, Legatus, which is an organization of Catholic CEOs, 
of which I'm the president of the Phoenix. Well, I'm the outgoing president of the Phoenix chapter. Um, he started that. Actually, I can't remember what year he started that, but it was quite a while ago. Um, amazing guy. Uh, you know, clearly uh, very soft-spoken man, the, the consummate gentleman. Um, getting, up, getting up in years, in fact, he just lost his wife, I want to say three months ago. No, July, July. So uh, God rest her soul. But uh, yes, Tom is definitely a, a, a giant of what I would call principled entrepreneurship. Yes, and he is a giant in Catholicism and a, a giant in, in the business world as well. He started in the pizza biz around 1960 after a stint in the Marines. He grew up in an orphanage. His father died, and his, his mother basically needed help raising him and, his, him and his brother. He spent a lot of time in an orphanage. Uh, and then, then, as I said, stint in the Marines, wanted to be uh, an architect, and ended up getting in the pizza business and really just just took off was it was an overnight success in about 20 years yeah. so, like most overnight successes and he's had a hand in just about anything with the name Ave Maria in it Ave Maria mutual funds you know they're not our fund but you could do worse and Ave Maria radio Ave Maria university uh the spiritus sanctus schools uh my my uh, nieces and nephews go to those schools in, in in Michigan so he owned the tigers for a while uh i think when they won a world series i should point out and one of the interesting things about Tom Monahan, I, I read a fair amount, two interesting things. I read a book by Joseph Pierce on him, as, and Tom Monahan, to his credit, picked Joseph Pierce, um, who was involved with Ave Maria University, not because he thought he'd write a fawning biography, but he wanted, to, he wanted someone to write the truth about him, good and bad, take him wherever, wherever the story led. Uh, and so I was doing a little additional research because I, I read the biography about a year ago. And there was an article in the New Yorker about him back in 2007. And it was a pretty good article, but the, the New Yorker writer just could not resist himself because he said he talked about uh, Monaghan's rimless glasses that made him look a little bit like Donald Rumsfeld. So, hmm. just, yeah, he's he's much thinner than that now. Yeah, but. Had, to, had to throw in you know, the, 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 the political angle for no real for no good reason. And it, yeah. t- that being said, Tom Monaghan's not shied away from uh, politics. He's been a been a fervent advocate for life. And uh, he actually he had another interesting inflection point. This is probably about the time he started Legatus. He realized he was collecting too much stuff and he really felt like he needed the validation of, of too many of, of these helicopters and, and cars and the Detroit Tigers. And he started, he started making a conscious effort to uh, simplify his life mm-hmm. and his possessions uh, in the, in the late eighties, early nineties. And so really trying to, trying to, uh, detach himself from a lot of those material possessions. And and that's when his philanthropy really took off. So Milagatis, which means the ambassador in Latin. And so so he is an ambassador for free enterprise system. Yes, definitely. Principled entre- entrepreneurship. Let's I like that. Definitely. Very good. All right. Well, we got in all the segments in under a half an hour. Jerry, anything else to add before we uh, get out this week? I think we're good on that. All right. So there you have it. In the meantime, we'll see you next week on the Long Only Podcast. Hopefully I was right about the number, 78 or 79, something like that. Something like that. Remember, check us out on Instagram, taylorforgotten.invest, and our website is taylorforgotten.com. Email the show longonly at taylorforgotten.com. Until next week, I'm Doug. I'm Jerry. Thanks for joining us on the Long Only Podcast.